0: You're listening to the Nate Lull Podcast. Download each new episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And now, here's Nate.
1: Thanks for checking back, everybody. Today is episode 235 here on the Nate Lull Podcast. I am your host, Nate Lull, and my special guest today is Sean Herbert. Sean is someone I've gotten to know over the last few years, and he is a producer at CBS News. And I always have student athletes asking about going to school for journalism and what the future might hold. And as I told Sean during our interview today, I always kind of struggle with giving them advice. So I brought him in to talk about his career, uh, where he started, where he is today, and what his advice might be to young journalists out there in the ever-changing world Uh, of being a reporter, whether you want to be in front of the camera or behind the camera. And Sean has seen some amazing things working for programs like 60 Minutes and working at ESPN for E60, as well as his current job working with CBS. So I just thought it was a neat opportunity to bring him on my platform and to hear a little bit about his story. And I think we can bring him back a lot in the future because he has a lot of cool, interesting stories to tell. So a big thanks to Sean for coming in today. Before we get started today, I'd like to thank our special sponsor, Advantage Maytag Home Appliance Center in Oneonta located at 550 main street you can uh, find a wide selection of refrigerators washers dryers stoves they have it all and they're very supportive of local sports so can't thank them enough and you can call them today at 432-6477 again advantage maytag home appliance center in oneonta all right let's get into episode 235 today here on the nate lull podcast All right. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Today is episode 235 here on the Nate Law Podcast. We continue to uh, to pump these out, and we have a bunch of fun stuff coming up down the road as we hit the holiday season. But this is one that's uh, been on my list. I know I say that often, but it's one I've had circled, and I finally got the guts to reach out and say, hey, would you come on? And we made it happen pretty much in 24 hours. So I have my friend... Sean Herbert here, he works for CBS, and and I like bringing on my media friends, and I think we'll have a good chat today. So thank you. Thank you for coming.
0: It's a pleasure. More than a friend, we're also neighbors.
1: We're also neighbors, which I thought I would start there, because the first, at least in my memory, the first time I remember meeting you is I'm walking home from my wedding. <laughs> so it sounds funny, but my wife and I got married about half a mile from our house. We're both runners. We said, wouldn't that be cool? At the end of the night, we'll walk home. So we're walking down the middle of the road in our small little town, and you're sitting on your porch. Do you remember this? And what do you what do you remember from the night?
0: I literally thought I had too much to drink on the porch. (laughs) I mean, what else could I think? Yeah, right. I mean, here is a married couple, clearly looked like bride and groom, walking down, and it wasn't Halloween. And my wife and I were like, this is just the most beautiful yet surreal thing that we've ever seen in our small little village of less than 400 people. And so, of course, we engaged you just saying, how are you? <laughs> you know, yeah, what are you doing? Right. Ignorantly saying, where are you coming from? If yeah. It wasn't obvious. <laughs> and uh, it's a, it's a first encounter I won't forget.
1: Yeah, we walked home. I mean, she's literally still in her wedding dress. I'm kind of half in my suit from a night of dancing and everything. And uh, that was fun. It was, and we walked away from that being like, wow, someone actually saw us. We just thought we'd walk home in the dark and and that would be it. But my question to you is, and everyone knows that, that I live in Gilbertsville. So the the question I always have is how do people find our area? What brings you here? Because for me as a lifelonger, it's like, I get it. And I love when new people come, but especially in our town, we find so many new people finding the area. And I'm always thinking, how how did you end up here?
0: Yeah, I'd like to say that um, it was predetermined, you know, <laughs> right. some level of just divine intervention. Honestly, my wife and I were looking for a place to really be off the grid, a digital desert, if you will. Oh, yeah. And um, I, let me take a half step back. The truth of the matter is it's completely by luck and circumstance and good timing that we found the town. That's the truth. We fell in love with our house. We made an offer on it within five minutes. Um, and we're grateful, honestly, that it, that all worked out and we were able to to move in and live here. Um, we believed it to be an oasis of beauty, imagination, culture, a bit of the past. And how we found it is is twofold. One, my mother used to summer in a place about an hour north of Gilbertsville called Dolgeville. Oh yeah, yeah, no, very few people have heard of it, but it's it's near Herkimer. Yep. And as a then as I got a little older, I would take these family trips, and we would go to Herkimer and go looking for diamonds, and yeah. so uh, the Herkimer diamonds. <laughs> yeah. But the bottom line is, so I'm I'm somewhat familiar with the area, but not really. And when our children were younger, we had friends. Uh, whose wife was from another very small town west of here in the southern tier called Angelica. Yeah, And we fell in love with that little town and spent several summers with the kids as families um, visiting that part of the state. And so when our time was done, which is to say when our children had graduated high school and were Off to college, we just finally pulled the trigger and started looking, and we were under contract for a home in Sydney, a center, actually Mm. specifically Sydney Center, um, as we sit here today, and that property fell through. I won't bore you with the details, but we basically had to start our search over again. But clearly we're already in the area. And it's one of those things where like anything else, you're, you're looking for a house, I think, you're looking for something that appeals to you on an emotional level. And we took one look at the house as a listing and said, where is this place? <laughs> How could it be so close to Sydney Center? And we hadn't visited or tripped across it, driven through, and so we just called the realtor and said, we have a few new houses on the list, and our search ended the same day we saw our home.
1: Wow. Yeah. So did you make an offer before actually seeing it, or did you come see it, walk around, and that was it? Yeah, I
0: didn't mean to step on you. The bottom line is absolutely we just uh, did not make an offer in advance. I think we saw it within four or five days. I saw several homes, actually. You probably remember that summer there were several properties for sale in the village, which is unra- is unusual. And um, we took one look at the house, knew it was the house for us, made an offer that day. And like anything else, takes a couple of months to close. But yeah. it all worked out our way.
1: I have a little history with that house you know, I used to go there growing up when there was a kid around my age that lived there. And then right before you guys made the offer, uh, some friends of mine who now live down the street from you had gone through it and they were touring it and they said, do you want to come? And I said, yeah, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. And it's just one of those beautiful homes. And um, I'm just thinking whoever gets this, whether it was them or someone else, like they're really walking into a special place on a special street and to me, from five or ten years ago, it feels like town's coming back a little bit, back to life. There's new, there's new energy there. There's new people. And uh, I really like that. I really like. And just people from all walks of life, which to me, you know, to have someone, that was the scuttlebutt. Oh, this, this guy moved into town. He works for CBS. Nate, you got to talk to him. So when we finally connected, that was, uh, that was really neat to me that, you know, someone that does what you do uh, has, has moved into our little town. Um, but for you and what you do now and having to travel so much, does it add that challenge on? Of if you get a phone call and you have to go uh, to cover a story, it adds that much distance onto your, onto your travels?
0: You know, not really, Nate. It's funny. I What we were looking for is a place that would essentially allow – and not just me, but certainly – the focus on me in in this conversation, a place to replenish, to regenerate, Mm. to, to relax. Every day I'm in Gilbertsville. It feels like a vacation day. Every day I'm in my home. It feels like I'm at a bed and breakfast. It's not mine. Um, There's just something peaceful about being that far away from the insanity. That is my career. And at the end of the day, is it a little bit further? Is it a little bit more inconvenient? Does it add a little more stress, uh, particularly if it's breaking news and I have to get somewhere far away from here? Yes. Um, but I think it's worth every penny. <laughs> it's priceless to me.
1: What do you? What is your take on – and I obviously have a lot of young listeners to the show. It's a collection of everyone that listens. But everyone – every 18-year-old says, I want to get out of here. I want to go see the bright lights in the big city. Um and and I encourage all of that. It's a great thing, uh, but then there's this also this part where I start to see people turn and and start to come back and say I like to have some distance from that as well. Uh, and and you've seen both. Is that kind of the the journey that you've gone through of like you've you've lived in the city but you also love the country?
0: Absolutely. I think first of all, I think we are in the middle of a renaissance. I think that there is a real yearning for the past. I'm not suggesting we turn back the clock and roll back policies that hopefully brought some equality to, um, to our society. But in, in many ways, I think everyone feels a little bit too much pressure to compete, too much pressure to uh, live beyond their means, frankly. And I think that people are seeing that there's less and less value in an urban environment. Um, so to fully answer your question, yep, typical you know, path where I graduated from college, migrated to the big city and got a corporate gig and started my life in the city as a single person, met my wife, got married, we lived in a city. And then like most people, we chose to have a family and we thought, do we want to raise our children in New York City or do we want to raise them outside of the city And we chose to raise our children in a much more very traditional suburban environment. And it's only now that our, we're the parents of adult children, that our children are out of the house and, and on their own and independent, that we are finally able to live where we want to live. Mm. And it is, I think, as far away from the start of my career, as far as the environment <laughs> where I live, that, it, that it's ever been clearly
1: and i want to break down you know what it is that you do for for work and a career but you know right off off the top i have so many students who come to me now i'm thinking of one individual from Oneonta who's applying early decision to syracuse and it's what she wants to do and we've chatted a lot about it and i don't always have the, the best advice for students about going into this, and, and I don't know if that's just because it's, it is a tough industry, and when you've been in it for a little while, and someone comes to you and they're bright-eyed and they, they're really excited, sometimes I, I don't want to be a, a negative person about it. Um, so I'm always curious like what your and other media people's take is. What advice do you give when you go and speak to students about getting into this type of career?
0: Uh, I'm very frank. And transparent. I think that our career – our career. Look, we're talking about journalism, right? In this case, broadcast journalism wasn't blessed with a a voice like yours. (laughs) But at the end of the day, yeah, I think journalism is tough. I think that uh, respect for journalism and the way – uh, we're all lumped together as part of this mass media, mainstream media, you know, that has a lot of negative connotations these days. Um, But it has in the past historically, right? And so uh, let's break it down a little bit. One, I would say this is not a career where you're looking for fame or fortune. You've got to love it. But I think that's true, Nate, for every walk of life, every career path you can choose. I've got friends that... The job is just as competitive on Wall Street, just as Mm. competitive in a law firm, just as competitive in an accounting firm. I mean, there's no walk of life where there isn't competition in the world that we live in today, first and foremost. But secondly, I do – I've always thought of journalism as a calling. It's not rocket science. It's really more of an apprenticeship to get those skills and to become a journalist. I – I learned plenty in college. I've learned plenty in my graduate studies in journalism, but I don't know that I'm any more successful because I have an undergraduate degree in journalism or a master's degree from a top-tier journalism school. I feel like I surrounded myself with other people that were very serious about it because they were spending years dedicating themselves academically to preparing for it, but I – so breaking it down, one – Don't do it for any other reason than you love it. You want to eat, drink, Mm -hmm. live, sleep, (laughs) own it from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to sleep because it is one of those rare industries that is 24-7. You're not likely to have a typical Monday through Friday – job. Right. And so that's the first thing, but the second thing is, listen, I'm not a first responder Nate, but I have spent the better part of the last 30 years heading towards trouble. I'm right behind first responders running towards, driving towards, flying towards a mass shooting, some horrible natural disaster, It takes a toll on you. Um, It's not a typical profession. And it's not one that you're even really prepared for in that regard. So I think that's important. But thirdly, and I'm not joking when I say – Uh, circling back to don't do it for fame and fortune, that's because I always thought of it as like a civil servant, that we are serving society. We have an obligation. I'm dedicated to informing the public. That's what the role of a journalist is. It's to hold elected officials accountable, to point out and expose wrongdoing and corruption, whether it be in a public entity or a corporate environment. It's to keep the public informed and there have been so many times in my life where not only am i a witness to history but my obligation in that moment in history is to make sure the public is informed and we speak to the right people and get the right information so that the public then has enough information to make a decision on how to support what's happening how to um help the people that may be harmed i don't you know throw out some example you know specifics i'll be glad to provide them but you know i think it's it's really important it's a pillar of democracy to have um the fourth estate be there as a watchdog on our institutions
1: do you feel like now that you've i mean you've been working in the industry for a long time when you see young people come in do you feel like they have the uh, attitude that you have, or are we in this new world where they want to be in it for fame and for fortune, you know, quotes there. Uh, That's one thing I struggle with. I I have kids say, I want to be your intern and et cetera, et cetera. And then I think they just think I go to games and have fun. And it's like, well, there's all this other work on the back end, And I, I wonder now, like with a a young journalist, if they come in and and they want to be the watchdog or if they want to be, a celebrity. I don't know. You know, that's one thing I struggle with when I talk to kids.
0: I actually think I think like almost anything else, this industry has a pendulum mm. and I think it's swung um, historically um, when I think back to my not not just role models, but, you know, the people that I idolized that were journalists before me from Edward R. Murrow to Walter Cronkite to the original um, lineup at 60 Minutes to Dan Rather, um, Scott Pelley, who's still doing it today at CBS News. These people – and I happen to have just biasly mentioned only people that <laughs> um, worked at CBS News. But, but they were certainly my role models. And there was a level of fame and stature um, that each of them um, achieved. That's not my path, that wasn't my journey, and that's never been my role at CBS News. I have a face for radio, I like to say, (laughs) and uh, I never had an interest in being essentially talent. I never thought of myself as a correspondent, and really, I never thought of myself as a reporter. Now, that's mostly, and I don't want to get too in the weeds inside baseball of journalism, but I always wanted to be in broadcast television news. And there are a lot of jobs as you know Nate behind the scenes. Uh and it's not just producers, it's the cameramen, the, the audio technicians, there are people in the control room and line producers that put those programs together. There are it's such a collaborative business that really that I'm in, that we are in. And so um you know I so What I saw as a young person wanting to follow in the footsteps of these giants of broadcast TV news was just to have a small role, um, just to be a part of it. And I like to say I would pay every employer I've ever worked for because I'm so grateful for the job and Mm. the privilege to be a journalist. I get to travel the world telling and sharing stories with people. With the world, I consider myself among the luckiest people in the world. But you got to love it. So I don't know that anyone else would feel the same way if they were walking or standing in my shoes. But that's how I feel about it. But to the point about where's the role of journalism and what's the motivation behind this generation? I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I will tell you, Nate. I think the the days of incredibly overpaid, overcompensated people with their names on their own broadcasts is kind of over. Um, And so I think there's less interest in the fame and the fortune. Mm. And I kind of hope so, because actually what I'm seeing is we've gone, that pendulum has swung back and I'm, I'm, I think it's difficult to find young people entering our profession who want to work Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, or in that cycle, <laughs> right, that, right? That that want to miss, um, how many Thanksgivings have I worked? How many Christmas days have I worked? How many New Year's Eves have I worked? Right. And the answer is too many. Too many. You know. Too many. It's it's the hardest part about being a journalist at thirty plus years and having a family is I I is the work life balance trying to be a good husband, trying to be a good father. That's what's tough for me. And it's because I love what I do.
1: It's something I ask uh, a lot of coaches we have in here, um, especially guys that have been doing it, you know, 30, 40 years. How did you do it when you work nights and weekends and holidays? And and everyone's answer is a little different, but it's something that I really struggle with now. And I... I'm lucky I made the decision to be more here so that I wouldn't maybe have to spend all those nights in a hotel. You know, my job previous to this, we were on the road for sports and you're playing in this city for two or three days. And then you go to here for two or three days. And I'm thinking to myself, when the kids come, what do I, how did, you know, what do you do? How did you handle that?
0: Well, of course, excuse me, uh, The first thing is um, unfortunately this is again is an era in the late 80s, early 90s. There was less corporate perks to our lives Mm. and less human resources of departments that were caring more about that – helping employees with work-life balance. We didn't have family leave or parental (laughs) leave or paternity, maternity leave. I remember our son was maybe a week or two old. There was a terrible plane crash in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And I worked at the far, on the foreign desk at CBS News at the time. And I got launched, which is the word we use. And I had moments to pack and, and basically travel up to Nova Scotia. And I was three weeks on that assignment. Oh, and my gosh. I realized when I came home, I'd missed more than half of my son's life. Wow. So the answer is, how do you find that balance? It's not always easy. But again, there are a lot of jobs within this industry that don't require you to be shot out of a can and and launched to breaking news. That happens to be sort of my – that's on my resume. That's what I do well apparently according to my bosses and all the bosses (laughs) I've had. I don't know how you do it. Over the last 30 years. So let me give you an example of that. I mean at the end of the day – the last six years, I have been the producer for the CBS Mornings lead national correspondent. That required 200 plus days a year on the road. That that put me on 130, 40 flights a year. That is not, I don't think, usual and customary. I think that's mm. actually quite unique. And I can tell you just before COVID – I worked with our lead national correspondent, David Bagno. Uh, David and I were the most traveled people, apparently, in our entire corporate structure. So under <laughs> Paramount, that's all the movers and shakers in Hollywood and on the entertainment side. That includes all of the folks that you can imagine at CBS Sports that cover the NBA, the NCAA. Yeah, wow. Right? So the fact that Sean Herbert and David Bagno were the most traveled <laughs> people in the entire corporation is really saying something. Yeah. But we would basically spend the week hopscotching from Plane to plane, city to city, story to story, Monday through Friday. And uh, so you're on 10 flights a week um, for wow. an entire year. So um, – but but is that, it's anything but typical. And I certainly look and strive for more balance in my life than the peak of that insanity because it was unmanageable.
1: To me, thinking that I could just – we could be sitting here – and you said this today when we set the interview up. Yeah, I can be there tomorrow as long as the phone doesn't ring. Is there a certain aspect that's exciting to you about that? I don't know where I'm going next because to me, it would stress me out. I think like I, I can't make plans. I don't know where I'm going. It could ring and I could have to go to California tomorrow. I don't know.
0: I'd say I'm a little bit more neutral about that. It just is what it is. And so that is my reality. As an example, Nate, the car that I'm in has five bags in the trunk (laughs) and there's a, I'll tell you what's in it. It's ballistic gear gear. For civil unrest or some place where they're sending me, where there's actual harm's way, where a bulletproof vest or a ballistic helmet is is required. Wow, wow. Um, I've got a bag that was seasonally that's set up for hurricanes and really wet weather. Right. I've got a bag that's for really cold weather. I've got a bag we call bunker gear just for fires wildfires, which I do more out west than, I, that, than it happens here. I know this year we've had a bit of that story in the Northeast because of the Canadian wildfires, um, you know, basically the smoke coming this way uh, in the jet stream. So, but yeah, so I basically have a seasonal rotation of the bags that I think I need and the bags that I always need, like the ballistic gear. And look, for the last four plus weeks, I assumed I'd be heading to Israel to cover that conflict. Um and I'm grateful that I'm not there, but I'm ready to go if 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 my number's called. And that's just the part of our lives that really again, n- no comparison to first responders, but that's no different than if you were in the military or if you're, you know, a first responder at your local volunteer fire department. Right. I'm just always ready to go. And just Looking through
1: some of your work, it's such a broad spectrum, and there's some specifics I wanted to ask you about, but you've done news, you've done sports, etc., but I, I can't not ask you the question of, like, you've covered terrible weather, you've covered school shootings, you've covered this, you've covered that. Is there something that sticks out to you that is the scariest moment or the proudest moment? I mean, it's hard to even phrase a question because I'm like the scope of what you have done. I mean, having five bags in your car speaks to that, right? I mean, you could be in any place at any time. Is there anything maybe even in the last couple of years that you're like, wow, how did I end up here?
0: Well, it's interesting. I I equate it to asking Paul McCartney what's his favorite song. Yeah, right. Or Bob Dylan or Bruce Springsteen, someone with a remarkable catalog. It is tough. And um, I will say that at the end of the day, I there are definitely moments in history that I'll never forget. The 2000 contested presidential election, uh, 9-11, uh, being yes. being in yeah. New York City, lower Manhattan on September 11th, 2001. More recently, COVID for sure. Um, being in New York City and I was in Grand Central, I think on March 13th. It was the first day where they're going to. Uh, implement um, a quarantine and and being in Grand Central during rush hour and no one being there it's remarkable.
1: Yeah, that had to be crazy.
0: So I would say there there are moments and they're not all cataclysmic, terrible stories with human tragedy. I'm 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 equally as proud of the projects that I've done that capture the essence of what the best of humanity has to offer you know the the neighbors that came to the aid of of someone or a, a heroic act by a, a member of our military or a world war II veteran getting her recognition at the age of 102 yeah tell from me the about first lady of the united, tell the me about that of the united states Crescencia garcia amazing story you know david begno and i were talking to earlier the lead national correspondent for cbs mornings We've had our fair share of breaking news assignments, but we've uh, – and really under David's um, desire, really wanted to try and find more balance in the stories that we tell. And with all the doom and gloom that sort of is required of the jobs that we had to focus as much as we can on stories that are uplifting, that are inspirational um, – of average citizens doing extraordinary things. And uh, certainly one of those was a story that came to us actually initially during COVID, the first year of COVID, I believe. A woman named Tara Garcia, a wonderful woman, um, her grandmother was like 100 years old, contracted COVID. She was living in the Bronx and reached out to David to say, My grandmother beat this. She deserves some attention. Mm. Please, you know, tell her story. And I'm not (laughs) even sure it was a request. I think she just wanted to share with us that she had a 100-year-old grandmother that essentially had beat COVID. And so that was a story that did grab David's attention on his twitter um page and he has you know tens of thousands of followers he just put it out there that this hundred year old beat it right um early on in the covid pandemic where people were looking for stories that they could you know feel good about sure yeah and um that got seen by a retired colonel in the army her name is uh, retired colonel edna cummings And she had a suspicion based on the age of the woman um, that she may have actually played a fairly substantial uh, role in World War II as a woman, Um, which is obviously a bit – you don't hear a lot of stories about female units during World War II that did extraordinary things. right? Yeah. And she reached out to the family and said, send along her dog tags and anything else you can tell us about her military service. I'll do a check. And sure enough, it turns out, again, unbeknownst to David and I, that this was happening behind the scenes. And it turns out Tara's grandmother, Crescencia Garcia, had served in the 6888. It was a unit of all females. And to be honest with you, black female um, service women who. Actually, served overseas and played this critical role in helping get a backlog of mail out to the soldiers on the front lines in the European conflict in 1944. And long story short, it comes back to us that. It, sure enough, that post led to her family basically discovering an entire history and chapter of their grandmother's life that they never knew. The grandmother, they had no Ascente, idea, had never spoken about it. I mean, they knew she served in the army. I think they even knew, or at least some did, that she served overseas. But no one connected the dots. She certainly didn't speak of it like it was a big deal, and so. When we heard the story, and and the Colonel Cummings was very excited because essentially <laughs> there are only a handful that were right. left, yeah. And at the time, there were only six known survivors. Crescencia Garcia becomes the seventh known, still alive, um, and and are being honored. By the way, there's a movement to um, award the unit the Congressional, I think, Medal of Honor. Mm. A congressional gold medal, I believe, for service and and et cetera. Anyway, quite the story to tell. We were honored to tell it. So we sit down. We interview her. She's now 102 years old at the time. Um, The White House hears about it. The First Lady of the United States gets involved. She wants to have a a, a role in our, our feature essentially on this woman. We sit down. The First Lady calls her thanks her for, for her service um, it was quite a memorable project to work on it was a complicated story to tell honestly be just because we were coordinating several crews right, right. around the country simultaneously and 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 you know could you know fortunately the, the piece actually got some recognition she has since passed hmm. just this last summer and uh, but what an honor to tell that story and those are definitely among the more Positive, memorable stories that I am certainly proud of and privileged to be able to tell.
1: Amazing that if the COVID, you know, DM or tweet doesn't happen, you pro- you probably never know about it, and maybe her family never knows. And I mean, boy, what a small world, and how that all connects.
0: Right, and it probably took ten extra minutes. Yeah, t- ten minutes too long to tell it, but really that's what we look for when we're yeah. sharing stories is relatable. There's multiple layers. There were just so many layers to that story, Nate. And absolutely the mere fact, it, it was an honor and a privilege that her family got to learn this before she passed right? and could right. share with her in that recognition for her service to the country. Uh, what a patriotic woman she um, was. And uh, then to, think that the White House is interested in that yeah. <laughs> the First Lady would be interested in participating and recognizing her. Uh, it, it It's what makes me, it's easy for me to get up and get, get, go to work every day.
1: And people always say, you know, much lesser scale, basically, like, what, what do you love most about your job? And I say it's stuff like that. Like, to me, it's getting to know a family and the backstory. And then if you stay with it long enough, you might come across some big history piece like that. And that's what I really like. It's not so much the day-to-day, but when you come across something special like that, it's like, wow, okay, that's why I'm here. That's worth the long nights and the holidays and all of that stuff, because something about that, when you stumble across something that really gets you going, it's hard. It's like you can't sleep. You're looking stuff up, you're researching, and you're so excited to try to get to the finish line. At least that's how I am about it. It's, It's amazing. One other one I saw that I thought was interesting was two high school sweethearts that hadn't seen each other for like 50 years and then end up getting back together and getting married how did how did you come up with that one where did that come from
0: yeah so um and again that's a fairly recent one so it's very fresh and yeah uh all the facts are there 63 years apart (laughs) oh my gosh they were high school sweethearts a little bit of an overstatement but they did date in high school right they were from nashville tennessee They, uh, he goes off to serve during the Korean War and, um, they lose touch. They eventually fall in love with other people, get married, raise families, and they both find each other as widowers. Wow. They never, clearly, the story is, and the story that we shared with our viewers on at CBS Mornings was that, um, that love was, I guess, stronger than they even knew at the time. They broke up at the end of high school when he was going off the war. He was a couple of years older. I say going off the war. He, he was definitely joining the military. Eventually, he did serve mm-hmm. in Korea and Vietnam. Um, but it wasn't like he was being drafted or that it was wartime. I don't believe it was. Um But at the end of the day, they connect after – decades and decades apart. And yeah, who doesn't want to tell a story great. like that, right? And so she was living in Georgia. He was in California. They have one date. They meet in Nashville. They they they, they share a kiss the first time they re you know <laughs> see each other after all of those decades. And of course we get to share all of those layers and all those moments by interviewing the two of them. Yeah and they have since now Gotten married and now we're living together in, in Southern California. Um, how that story came to us is again, you know, when, when you work for a major network television, uh, news operation, it is a little bit easier because David Begno, as the lead national correspondent, does have a lot of Exposure, right? So people see the stories that we're doing, and so somebody reached out and basically um, sent along an article, and I think it was in the local Nashville paper after their first date after sixty-three years, and David of course loved it, and I of course loved it. And my job then is to line it all up, coordinate all the crews, shoot all the interviews, and then put it all together, write a script, get into edit, and work with David and the editors and our uh, senior producers and all the other people that are part of this very collaborative business, as I was explaining to you, uh, that is the CBS Mornings. And put it on television where hopefully millions of people see it and are as inspired by it as we are.
1: Amazing. So when someone off the street asks you, "What is a what does a producer do at CBS? How do you define that role and what you do?
0: Yeah, well, you wear a couple of hats, right? One is absolutely once I have a project, whether it's been assigned to me or I've pitched it as something that we want to do as a team, uh, our, my job is essentially own it from start to finish. Mm. From concept to completion, from pitch to it airing on, on a CBS News platform, um, that that content is, is buttoned up and, and, and gets on the air. And that requires, of course, research and reporting and making phone calls and making those tough choices about what voices you include to the structure of the piece once it's all been shot as to how you're going to structure that piece to. Keep the audience engaged for a couple of minutes or, you know, six, seven, eight minutes. We've had a couple of pieces that are two-parters and, you know, that's a lot of real estate in in network television news these days. That is, yeah. And so it's a little bit more – labor-intensive to get that content turned around. And so as a storyteller, when you're doing features, that timeline is a little bit longer, right? It may take a few weeks to to set that all up, then shoot it, then get it into edit and turn it around and get it on the air versus, say, a couple of weeks back when I had moments notice to go from lower Manhattan where I was covering um, Donald Trump's civil trial to Lewiston, Maine, Oh, right and, right. and then you only have sometimes hours, maybe only an hour or a couple of hours to get your correspondent and your team on the air and contributing to the CBS mornings program or uh in that scenario, I'm actually then representing what we call net first. I am I'm, I'm then responsible as a producer not just for CBS Mornings but for all broadcasts. So I'm working for all CBS news platforms. So there have been many times where I've had pieces that I produce for uh, Sunday morning, for Face the Nation, certainly for the evening news, occasionally for Forty Eight Hours. So it just depends.
1: Wow, I I did want to ask, and you know I don't I don't know what your answer will be or, but like, what was it like, or can you explain to us how nine 11 was for you um, being down there? I mean, were you just at work? It's a normal day. I mean, it, it, it's tough to ask that question, but I'm curious from a news perspective, how you, how you handled it.
0: Yeah. Well, I won't bore the audience with too much of the details, but um, th- there have been three assignments in my l- career that have left an indelible mark uh and 9-11 was certainly the first one for me the newtown uh sandy hook school shooting was mm-hmm. the second one and uh more recently uvalde those two school shootings and 9-11 uh were just so much more above and beyond what any one human being should experience in their life in in my opinion. It was hard to do my job. It was hard to be a witness. It was hard to stay impartial. It was a challenge not to get emotional. 9-11, September 11, 2001, without question, changed my worldview, changed um, how I think about my job, how I think about My job and how it impacts my family. Um, Mm. So here's the story. Um, I was living in New Jersey, commuting, young family. Our daughter was less than a year old. Our son, I believe, was less than three years old or just around three. And I commuted by bus. To the Port Authority bus terminal, like tens of thousands of other commuters every day into New York City. And I was on my routine bus on the way to New York City. I was an associate producer at 60 Minutes at the time. I worked there for seven seasons. And actually still to this day the best job I ever had. But my job was different in that I almost did sort of have – a nine to five like schedule mm. with a lot of time for pre-production and knowing and planning trips. I didn't do as much breaking news. I did a lot of features. And so I was on my way to work and I basically showed up and worked probably ten to seven more realistically. Sure. So I think it was eight forty in the morning. I'm on the bus. I usually get in around nine fifteen to nine thirty and walk up to the office and and go about whatever that. Day was I can tell you what story I was working on. I was actually just a few days away from going to Italy to do a profile on Michael Schumacher.
1: And oh, we're going wow. to the
0: Ferrari <laughs> um, track in Monza. And it was a story that I was excited to tell and one that certainly I thought was important and significant at the time. Yeah. But that's the other thing that came from September 11, 2001, for me, which is what stories are really, truly important and impactful. Um, and I was excited decided to do that story. In the end, I never worked on the Michael Schumacher 60 Minutes profile because my life and my job changed after 9-11. So getting back to the bus, I'm on the bus. And my coworker, uh, producer I was working with, calls my cell phone and says there's been a plane that struck the tower. uh, One of the towers of the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan. He's commuting. And he can see the tower is billowing smoke. And my first thought was – and I could see from just being on the bus. It was a beautiful day. There Mm -hmm. wasn't a cloud in the sky. And I'm a journalist. I'm a born skeptic. I immediately thought that's just not – that's just so unusual that there has to be more to this story. Now – I thought it was a small plane and maybe it was just a pilot who had a bad day in a single prop plane and just wanted to take his own life and thought this is the way he was going to pay back the world. I had no idea at that moment that it was a commercial airliner. And I said, but I've got to get to the office immediately because that's going to be my – that's going to be – I'm going to drop all of my plans and that's going to be my – that's going to consume my day. That's what I was thinking. This is only with one plane striking the tower. And then uh, as we're approaching the Lincoln Tunnel on the bus, um, phones ringing off the hook, second plane has hit a tower, at which point I know exactly what's happening, which is there's no doubt that this is calculated. It's it's an attack on the United States of America and that it was likely terrorism and more importantly and more immediately – they were going to declare a state of emergency. They were going to close the bridges and tunnels. And I'm not going to get in. And so I and again, I'm not alone now. There's 40 other passengers on the bus. Other people are getting phone calls. We can see the towers both billowing smoke. And I walk to the front of the bus and I tell the bus driver, You don't know me from Adam. My name's Sean Herbert. I work at CBS News. If you haven't heard Soon you're going to be notified on your radio that there has been a terrorist attack in New York City, in lower Manhattan, and they're likely going to close the bridges and tunnels. And I urge you to just pull off the route um, because we may get stuck. And selfishly, I was just thinking, I'm not alone. I don't think anyone on this bus is going to want to go into New York City anyway. Right, right. Or B, be stuck now in gridlock, horrific traffic. On the approach to the Lincoln Tunnel. And so he listened to me mm. and he turned the bus around. As he is turning the bus around, which is, just means side streets, I think, in Weehawken, sure enough, radio, uh, you know, New York, New Jersey Port Authority, he gets a radio communique saying that state of emergency has been um, declared and that you are to XYZ. It's a little bit of a blur, but at the end of the day, if you weren't already in New York City, you are to avoid New York City. We're urging all of our drivers and train conductors and everybody else in the system to do what you can to essentially get those people that are on your um, on your buses and trains and what have you off and, and back to the, where you pick them up. And so we fortunately avoided all of the traffic and my bus driver literally just – you know how it is. You have a you have a routine. You, you have, you know, pickups oh, yeah. along the way, and it's pretty set in stone. This driver had such compassion for the situation, and everybody really started to then, you know, uh, be concerned about their own loved ones and wanting to get back home. He dropped every person off as close to their house as he could. Wow. And it probably took an hour plus because by the time my bus got back to where I lived— the towers, both of them had already fallen. And I felt horrible that I essentially was missing the story, that I wasn't there, that I wasn't covering it, that I was stranded in all places, New Jersey, right. when the world was focusing its attention on Lower Manhattan. And I knew that all of my co-workers were there. Were, were there. Yeah, And so I spent an hour or two trying to strategize, what can I do? How can I get into New York? How can I get to lower Manhattan? By then, everybody knew that the Pentagon and that uh, Shanksville had another plane go down in Pennsylvania. And so I thought, look, I can't offer my news organization any assistance uh, with their coverage in lower Manhattan. No need to go to D.C. Um, I basically told my bosses, Why don't I rent a car and drive out to rural Pennsylvania and cover that story? Because that's going to be a heck of a story. Yeah. If that plane went down and it didn't hit its intended target, and if passengers were involved in bringing that plane down, there's going to be a story there. We didn't know what the story was at that moment that I was pitching it, but I was very confident that that was a story that I could participate in, that I could add value to. And so that was my goal. And my boss got back to me and said, absolutely not. Oh. The year before when I was, while I was at 60 Minutes, I worked on a Mike Wallace piece that had to do with the Department of Corrections in Rikers Island. Forgive me, Nate, this story will never make it on your podcast because <laughs> it's just too long and layered. But I essentially, the, the commissioner of the Department of Corrections in 1999 was someone named Bernard Carrick. And I spent weeks Inside the Department of Corrections, spending the hours and hours and hours of my time producing a project at Rikers Island, visiting the various jails and telling their story about how they were bringing security and reliability and accountability to Rikers Island. And Bernard Carrick and I stayed in touch. On 9 11, 2001, Bernard Carrick had been promoted and elevated to police commissioner. And that was clearly a very important person in my list of contacts where I had a relationship gotcha. on yeah. 9-11 because he, the the mayor and the fire department commissioner and the police department commissioners were probably the three most important people in the world right. on that day. And my boss essentially said to me, I don't care how long it takes, but you are to to basically – In bed with the NYPD and help us get access to the stories at Lower Manhattan. Wow. So long story short, I rented a car. I know northern New Jersey like the back of my hand. (laughs) I I basically (laughs) navigated all the closed streets, uh, drove as close as I could get to the George Washington Bridge. I walked over. No way. (laughs) Across the George Washington Bridge with a go bag against an entire sea of humanity. Um, because everybody was walking out of Manhattan any way they could, including across the George Washington Bridge. So long story short, I then had a walk. They closed all of the subways. There was no way to get anywhere. I took a subway as far south as I could. I then got to my office, retooled, spoke to my boss one more time, got marching orders. And it's now probably 2 in the afternoon, 2.30 in the afternoon. I spent the rest of the day walking all the way to lower Manhattan. And essentially my job for the next eight weeks nonstop uh, every day for weeks and weeks and weeks uh, was to be the coordinating producer for CBS News across all of its platforms. I produced several stories for 60 minutes. I worked on an hour uh, at 48 hours, all dedicated to what was happening in the days and the weeks after 9-11. And uh, I'll never forget what I saw there. I'll never forget the people that we met and the interviews that we conducted and um, just watching New York City try and rebound from that horrific day.
1: I cannot imagine walking across the GW, everyone's trying to go the other way, and you're and you're walking, and that must just be, what a moment.
0: I mean, I'll never forget it, obviously, Nate, but there are, you know, I have – Dozens and dozens of moments like that, right, but without question, one of the most um, a, a moment that I uh, will I'll live with for the rest of my life. no question
1: Wow, I mean, I feel like I could just sit here all day and ask you <laughs> ask you questions about all that, but in the essence of time, and we do have repeat guests, so that's all uh, it's good to know you're in the Rolodex now so we can bring you back. But as a sports guy, as I hit the home stretch here it's hard to transition off of that because what a amazing story. But I mean, E60 is if you're a sports fan, you love E60 and I know you you've done some work with them. In fact, I believe launching, helping to launch E60 and those stories are just, if you're a sports fan, I mean, you get sucked in. If it, if you're walking through the room, you see it on TV, you stop. And next thing you know, 20 minutes is gone. What was that like when you got that call to say, Hey, this is something we, we want to do.
0: Yeah. Well, simple, uh, Tremendous guy at ESPN where we both went to the same uh, J school um, back in the day. And uh, I saw that ESPN was launching a sports magazine show. I had worked at 60 Minutes. I helped CNBC launch a news magazine show. News magazine essentially just means long form, right? Right. So as a whole, 12, 13-minute pieces, normally in prime time uh, at any network, they're all pretty much the same. 2020 – 48 hours they're all projects that have you know substantial storytelling and certainly that's where the focus of my career has been since 1998 um that I'm primarily that's my that's my jam when I can I'm looking to basically find stories to pitch to tell um that that deserve and can sustain you know substantial minutes 6 minutes 8 minutes 10 minutes 12 sure. minutes and so I love sports. I'm a total. We could talk sports all. Day. Yeah, right. Grew right. up playing sports. None of them well. Uh, you know, my body is in shambles as a result. But I <laughs> love sports, and played um, as a kid through high school. Dabbled in college, and essentially um, knew that if you can tell a story, you can tell a story for business or in this case for sports and i'd worked on a kobe bryant profile i'd covered a lot of again national sports stories over the years at cbs news and so it was really just an extension of that because sports is so intertwined in our world that often sports becomes a a mainstream news story right Outside of the sports pages, outside of the ESPNs of the world. So yeah, dream job. And, uh, like I said, every job, every employer I've ever had is a dream come true. That was a fantastic job. Remarkable budgets. They basically wanted to get in the business of earning ESPN some Emmys for great storytelling. And so they launched a news magazine. Smart. And, uh, got to work with a lot of their really talented sports reporters. And traveled the world telling stories. Very proud of the we we did the story of Oscar Pistorius long before oh, wow. he ended up right. in a situation where he found himself imprisoned for manslaughter after killing his girlfriend. But at the beginning, great debate about prosthetics and an amputee wanting to compete. Um, with other able-bodied athletes and how that was even possible and traveled to South Africa and got to um, challenge the sports world with his story and his desire to compete with able-bodied people. Um, But the answer to your question is very easy to work in sports for me and no different really than the the job I have today and an honor and a privilege. I, I think that talking sports and telling sports stories at the end of the day, it's still just about characters telling compelling stories and letting them into your lives, letting you share in their lives their story. And um, I have fond memories of the time that I spent there and and the stories that I produced.
1: You know, as a sports guy, everyone says to me, Oh, when are you going to work at ESPN? When are you going to work at ESPN? Was that, uh, as a sports guy yourself, was that kind of a... Uh... I don't know a pinch-me moment or anything like that. Like I don't, I don't have the desire to work at ESPN. People think I'm crazy about that, but you know, were you in Bristol? Were you around kind of the, the yeah. heyday of Sports Center and all of that? And what was that like?
0: Yeah. So I of course, um, I think it's very important as as uh, as a as a journalist, but also as a, a member of that industry, of this industry, not to get distracted or 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 Brainwashed by the celebrity, no matter yes. where I've worked. I right. mean, I've had the the privilege of working with Don Hewitt and Ed Bradley and Mike Wallace. I mean, these are titans yeah. of broadcast <laughs> news. Dan Rather, among my most favorite. And so, what I would say to you is, I that that's n- never been a pinch me moment. Any job that I've had, mm. other than the resources and the history and the and the commitment to their. Craft that I'm grateful for. A. B, and I'm sorry to burst anyone's bubble, but it was the least um, favorite job that I've had. (laughs) They were the most difficult employees. Yes. Yeah. um, Employers. I did not have a great experience. Now, that's more of a very personal issue that I have within the realm of journalism and ethics. And storytelling and what i call standards Mm. standards are something that are very important to me some news organizations have them some don't sports as a whole as organizations do not and so we had a lot of butting of the heads and clashes strictly over that um because at the end of the day they're definitely more on the entertainment side than my resume and my passion for journalism um is drawn more closely towards but a wonderful experience. And everything I did certainly was as journalistically uh, sound as any other organization that I've worked for. Um, it was just a little bit more of a struggle to keep it that way.
1: I think that's where, and you and I have talked about this before off the air, but I think that's where I struggled the most with sports. And people say, why wouldn't you want to do this or that? And I said, in my small, very small experience of working in bigger places, I felt very uncomfortable with the way some things got pushed on me or expectations and I think it's a big reason why I admire what you do because you it's like you have this rock solid foundation of what you do and the outside world doesn't play into that and you're going to do your job and get it done and I had trouble with that when I was working in a bigger market because I got caught up in the the politics of it and the not the not the fame of it or – I'm not saying I was – but like being around bigger named people, I struggled with that. I really – and I don't mean like I couldn't do my job, but it was just – it brought this extra element of energy that I didn't know what to do. Like I, I'd get around somebody. You don't know how to act. You don't know what they expect of you, et cetera. So I admire – I don't know how you do that, honestly. <laughs> well,
0: you know, this is again – just to broaden out the appeal of, of this episode, a job is a job. Mm. An employer is an employer. I think the larger the corporation, the larger the company that you work for, the more challenges you may have adapting – getting along with everybody, the internal politics, and that exists whether you work on Wall Street yeah, very true. Or, or if you work in any industry across America, certainly here in the Southern tier. You know, I don't know what it's like to be an employee at Chobani, but I'm sure they have some challenges right. <laughs> as the largest employer in in, in the region. And, and I'm grateful that they're here. Don't get me wrong. Yes. But without question, I think the struggles that I had at ESPN were a little bit more personal because of that focus more on entertainment. Don't let facts get in the way of a good story. Use music to manipulate your audience. Those things bothered me as a journalist, but not as a viewer at home. A. Right. And B we have conflicts of interest. The larger the company, the more conflicts of interest you have. True. There are conflicts of interest in my day job now at CBS News, without question. I just worked on a story with our chief medical correspondent about an eye transplant, the first human eye transplant. Amazing story. It was on last week. It's okay if you didn't see it. <laughs> but… um our chief medical correspondent also is a doctor working at the institution where this eye transplant took place, mm. but we didn't hide that fact. I worried that when I worked, if I was working at ESPN and there was a similar conflict of in- conflict of interest. They would not have disclosed that. We disclosed it in three or four different ways because it's required of us at CBS News to make sure you are as transparent to the audience as you can be. And that's all I care about. So if it's easy to be transparent in a small organization like this, you get to stay close to where you're born and raised. I'm jealous, frankly. Uh. (laughs) And I don't think for young journalism, people who want to follow us in in this career, there's no wrong answer. You can stay in a small market. You can yeah, go to. You yeah. can travel and live. That, that, that's a very personal choice. I love the choice that you made, and that's your choice that's best for you. And maybe over time it changes, Nate. Maybe you don't want to exactly right. You don't stay here. I've definitely had a little bit of everything and I'm I, I'm I'm grateful where I am and I and they were the right choices for me but I wouldn't push those choices on anyone else. All I say and it goes back to our very first conversation in this podcast is you just have to love it. Yes. You have to love it. The rest I think is easy. Where you work, how many hours you work, how you find your work life balance, that's that's a that's different. But loving it first is the most important thing and you know you love it when you have found the right organization to do it, and and that you're that work life balance or you're, you're you're engaging and being able to share most broadly in your life is is the most important thing.
1: And I think and we've said this on the show many times is that when I was younger and you know I was working in those you know you're young you don't have that experience and I spent a lot of time fighting against what my gut was telling me because i felt like it was i had to go do this or that i had to try to climb the ladder and and if i really am honest with myself looking back to when i was a young you know even in grade school et cetera, I, i'm like i love this area i love and and those were the things that i wanted to do and even when i was in college and it was always like i'd like to go back home i'd like to be around my family and i spent so much time and energy fighting that i don't really know why when i finally kind of gave into it i said ah oh, i was like this weight was off my shoulders. And I, again, it goes back to what I was saying. When students ask me for advice, I struggle because I'm like, well, I was the guy that wanted to go home, even though it was, you know, Siberia as one of my internship bosses told me. He goes, why are you, you know, why are you going there? Um, But I also say to the kids, hey, if you want to go explore the world, this is the job. You can go anywhere, anytime. And, you know, you might sign a two-year deal and then you could go somewhere else and then you want to move south and then, you know, whatever. So, amazing. But yeah, if you love it, boy, the doors are the doors can open.
0: And and you asked me how I ended up coming to Gilbertsville. Right. In the world that I live in and the travels that I've had, I think the most important thing is community. What we're lacking, I think nationally, is the respect and the the recognizing the importance of community. And that means telling the the, the stories of the flyover states and the flyover communities mm. and spending time where the average person has lived and the, and the, and share the experience of the average American with the audience. It's critical. We are losing our local radio stations, our local newspapers. We have less and less people willing to work in Siberia. Right. <laughs> That's not a good thing no. for the fabric of our society. And I love that there's a real push now to try and get back to hyper local, community based journalism, and I think that's the future.
1: Wow, that's good to hear. It's also I love that as we hit the the final stretch here before I ask you the last question. But I just love that I can be here working at CDO, and I, I turn around the corner and there, you know, my neighbor, quote unquote, is working at CBS. I mean, that's that's a beautiful thing. You got to love that. So. Well, thank you for coming in. And our last question, we ask every guest, critical, favorite local place to eat? (laughs) And that's the look we get a lot of the Well, you're going to laugh because
0: (laughs) I'm pausing because, of course, I consider my local watering hole the Empire House right in Gilbertsville. And it is a staple because of its convenience. I will tell you, funny enough, the best food that we have found is Okinawa, a block from the studio. They have the best fusion Asian food. And uh, again, love it. I love it. Right. And I also love, Pizza, and we have a couple of favorite places for pizza. And I love going to Oxford to the ice cream shop. Yes. Um, So we have a couple of go-to places, but I'll be honest with you, and you're not going to be surprised. And I'm sorry if this isn't the answer most of your fellow podcast guests (laughs) have shared, but I love eating at home. Yeah, that's why I'm here.
1: We get that a lot, honestly.
0: I'm just as excited about um, the food that my wife brings home from the Amish market in Morris. Uh, and eating it with her cooked and prepared by my wife or I, uh, both of us, then we are about going out and, and having an, a good meal somewhere else. So. Yeah.
1: Great answer. Love it. So, well, Sean, I can't thank you enough for coming on. This was great. We'll have to do it again at some point and uh, great stories and, and great advice. So I appreciate it.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Nate.
1: That'll wrap up episode 235 today. Again, check back in the archives. We've had a lot of other local media and some national media guys on and of course all the the coaches and athletes uh there's a lot there so go back check it out and we'll see you again soon on the nate law podcast
0: you've been listening to the nate law podcast download each new episode on apple podcasts spotify google podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts